1963, around the time a young Tony Evans was walking to church and doing prison ministry with his father, a man named Howard Dial was beginning classes at Grace Theological Seminary in Indiana. I needed to work, and I found a job with Better Way Janitorial Service. And, of course, that meant working nights. You were my boss. You told me what I, what I needed to do, where I needed to go. And so we met. His boss, John McNeil, was another seminary student a few years ahead of him. He was a Georgia boy, Georgia peach. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I knew you didn't know too much about mop and all that. But, you know, in meeting you, John, and talking with you, this was the first, uh, I'm ashamed to say it, serious conversational relationship I had with an African-American. You were from Meadow, Georgia, and I was from the Atlanta area. And so we had at least some general culture, though growing up years were a lot different. We've mm -hmm. talked about those. Because mm -hmm. I got an education from you. And, and, you know, actually, you changed my life in the providence of God because meeting you and opening up another perspective mm -hmm. on the world and the needs out there. And you invited me up to your apartment down <laughs> by the lake, went on the lake for supper. And I don't remember all that we ate, but I do remember that piece of sweet potato pie. <laughs> my wife was a good cook. <laughs> I love that. And we... <laughs> It was so, that was such a very important part of my training. Well, he never changed. He, Howard never changed. We, we talked about clans when we talked about everything, and you know, we were brothers. Right. We right. were brothers, and I don't think I, we never, I can say for myself that I never flinched at that. It was just natural, normal. This is the way it's supposed to be. These two young seminary students, one black and one white, would soon find their way to a tiny Bible college for black students in the heart of Atlanta, Georgia. We're talking about Carver Bible College, where B. Sam Hart would send an 18-year-old Tony Evans to receive his Bible training. Before we get to Carver, though, Tony's got an appointment in Guyana. Welcome to Start to Finish, the life and ministry of Dr. Tony Evans. Episode two, the biggest question asker in the history of question askers. Guyana is South America, the only English-speaking country in South America, so we were British Guyana. It's a small country, about 800,000, the census said in 2022. Um, this is Elizabeth Canning, Lois Evans' sister. We were raised in a Christian home, strict Christian home, and it was eight of us that my parents raised. They had 10, but two stillborns, and they raised eight. Um, Lois was number three. I was number six. Our family always hosted missionaries and so forth, and so it was kind of natural for us to host. I, I, we knew of Sam Hart. My parents knew of Sam Hart and everything, and so this guy was coming through. To set up things, Tony Evans, we never heard of him. My dad likes to say that, you know, he was just irresistible. <laughs> you know what I mean? That, that's his story. <laughs> I love it. Here's Jonathan Evans again, Dr. Evans' youngest. And then my mom would always smirk 
and say, yeah, right. Yeah. And so, no, it was a crusade in Guyana. So he takes this trip. I think it's Sam B. Hart. Crystal's the historian. The story my dad will tell. I used to think it was for laughs and jokes and maybe his own ego, but I think this is actually how he remembers it, <laughs> is that she madly fell in love with him. But This is Crystal Evans Hurst. She's Dr. Evans' oldest child and a popular author, podcaster, and blogger in her own right. Her siblings love referring to her as Dad's Brain. I've heard my mother tell the story. I've right. heard her siblings tell the story. Right. Um, went on a trip to... Um, prepare in advance for a crusade with B. Sam Hart. And so he stayed in my grandparents on my maternal side, stayed in their home. My mom's dad is my dad's host, okay? Picks him up from the airport, all those things, brings him over to the house, all those. He comes into the house, he's hosting for the crusade. He's being hosted for the crusade. And then, you know, he says, you know, there was two things that happened to him. He looked over into the kitchen uh, as my mom was helping out in there, kind of getting dinner ready and stuff like that. And then he was like, oh my goodness, she's beautiful. So his heart started beating at a different pace Wow. Uh, when he saw her. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> and then she was cooking fried chicken. So then he got the gospel bird. <laughs> and so when he had the beauty and the gospel bird, he had to try to holler at her. I was about to say, made the mistake of cooking for him, but that wasn't a mistake. <laughs> but that's the way to my, our dad's heart is, yeah. is good food and, and her beauty. And this is child number three, Anthony Evans, worship leader, songwriter, artist, and former contestant on NBC's The Voice. That was the initial thing, and my dad just kind of makes decisions and goes with them. And so in that moment, the time that he got to spend with my mom, he was just like, well, that's it, found her. I mean, that, that was... Done deal. Yeah, it was a done deal. I've heard my aunt tell me that every day my mother had a job at Fogarty's, um, a department store in the downtown area. And um, she would get up and ride her bicycle to work. And in the evenings, my dad would get on another bicycle and ride to meet her. And they would ride bicycles home together. He seemed enthralled with Lois from the beginning. Don't know why. And he just pursued that all the way, all the way. And um, Lois wasn't very much interested at first. Um, Do you remember a conversation with your sister about, you know, at that time, Tony, Dr. Evans. Yeah, I remember telling her, why don't you like Tony? He's nice. <laughs> when I was 12, and she was 18, and he was 18, I just couldn't understand, why don't you like him? I'm trying to show me how, why you don't like him. And I, I think she thought he was nice, but, you know, we had Americans would come and fool girls' hearts, get them, and then disappear. At that time, I think he would say that her administrative skills were um, obvious. Of course, over time, those developed and managerial became the proper word. But um, he met her. She was beautiful. She had long hair. He would always talk about her long hair. She spent time sitting on the porch with my father, talking about her commitment to the Lord and how she had dedicated her life to the Lord at camp at 15. Mm. And so as teenagers, 18 years old, discussing that they both had a lifelong passion to serve the Lord in ministry. They just ended up spending some time together coming to realize that both of them were young people, you know, at the time, right, just right. in their teens. Right. But they both really wanted to serve God, whatever that meant. Here's child number two. We met her in the last episode, Priscilla Shire. 
for my mother, that did not mean being a pastor's wife. That was not <laughs> on her radar of anything that she felt right. like she was going to be doing in ministry. Right. Um, but of course, you know, God writes an entirely different story. Of course. So it's my understanding that dad said to her, I, I'm going to be back for you. I'm going to marry you. Committed to write her letters and all that stuff. And I remember at one time being told that the letter stopped for a second. He was going to write her every day and the letter stopped. And he promised her, like, I was doing that. And my mom was like, hey, if you're not serious, this is not, don't promise, don't do this whole thing. You know, we're not, we're not messing around with you saying something and not doing it. Okay. I got a phone call. <laughs> I got a phone call. Was something, had something changed. Right. Because she wanted to know that she wasn't just waiting for something that wasn't real. And I said, no, I don't know. I've been writing. And I think the next day or two, she got the stack of letters that had come in at one time. So there was something in the mails that, that delayed it. Right. Which, and so that was back on track. Right. Because I told her, no, I had been communicating the whole time. So as much as you're willing to share, what were in these letters? <laughs> oh, that was me doing my thing. You know? <laughs> they were just love basically it. love letters. Like, yeah. I love you. I miss you. Yep. Looking forward to being together. I mean, that, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Could you could you sense, obviously, the Lord used both of you together in such powerful ways in ministry, but could you could you sense the the compatible call upon oh, your lives yeah. right it away? Very, it was very natural, very um uh, yeah, very natural. Right. It was just something that happened. Uh, the camaraderie, the connectivity, and the ministry. All of that just kind of unfolded. We're missing a massive voice from the story. Dr. Lois Evans completed her earthly journey on December 30th, 2019. We'll do our best to represent her through the voices of her husband, sister, and children. Between September and January, I wrote her almost every day. Called a couple of times, but it was long. This is real long. This is called real expensive, so I couldn't do much of that. But I wrote almost every day, so wow. we corresponded by mail. She would wind up coming here to go to school herself. Okay. Later on in '69, okay, she would wind up coming, going to school herself, and then working for Sam Hart in Philadelphia. Wow. So she wind up working in Philadelphia for Sam Hart in his media program. Right. Now, I'm not in media yet, yeah. but she's getting this experience in media working for him. So for you and your family, are you the first one in your family to go to college? First one in the family to go to college, yes. How, how was that celebrated, talked about? I mean, Yeah, there- I mean, there was no resistance to it, particularly because now I was going to a Christian right. school right. for ministry preparation, right. which was something to be celebrated and endorsed. And I got on a train from Baltimore to Atlanta, uh, and that became uh, a different trajectory of life. No, no parents going with you, no parents checking you in, making no. sure your your comforter's in place, no. taking you. <laughs> yeah, none of that. I was I was now good luck, son. Eighteen on my own and being sent to school. That's fantastic. So, well, okay, I had not seen the school. Right. I just knew it was a college, you know, a Bible college, basically. I took the train from Baltimore to Atlanta. Got off the train. They had someone pick me up. 
I had on my blue suit, <laughs> drove up to the college campus, and I was shocked at how small it was. It was like infinitesimally small. Right. right. It was like tiny. <laughs> and I'm saying, what in the world is this? What I just signed up for. Well, yeah, what I signed up for. <laughs> this was like driving up to nothingness. Yeah. Because it was a tiny Christian school. I, I did not know that. Uh, it was established by a white missionary during the time of segregation when blacks would not be allowed to go to traditional Bible colleges because mm -hmm. of segregation. And that's particularly true in the South. So this missionary started this school to train um, black people in the scriptures. Mm -hmm. And um, it still had a predominantly white administration mm -hmm. um, with, with some black employees and one in particular that would be greatly influential in my life, John McNeil, who was the dean of students. But I drove up and I was just a little bit disappointed, put off, shocked, confused, <laughs> but I'm here now. Well, Dr. Evans came in this Tony, and he came from Baltimore, and he didn't realize that Baltimore was a part of the Southern Trend. He thought it was North, and we had to straighten him out. Here's Dr. John McNeil again. I had received information from Dr. B. Sam Hart that he had a young man that was very, very gifted, but he needed some more training. And would we um, consider having him at the school? Tony came to Carver about the middle of the day, and when he arrived, uh, he came in and he had on a blue blazing suit. I mean, he was... <laughs> he had never forgotten that noise. He ever let me forget it. So <laughs> I had the blue suit on. I did. Had a blue suit on. I love it. And he, he came in and we were having lunch. When he came in, uh, he said, I'm Tony Evans from Baltimore, and I came here to Carver for one year. So I'm, I'm prepared to go, go out and really minister, and I'll stay here for one year, and after one year, I'll leave and go to my ministry. And by the way, he says, uh, I'm already engaged to my wife, and I'm not looking for a wife. I done found her. Lois is the person, and she's going to be my wife. So I'm going to come and get one year, and after that, Tony going to minister. How much of a culture shock was it being in the South? It was a culture shock. Right. Uh, it was a different dynamic that I, than I had ever been exposed to. And although Maryland is just below the Mason-Dixon line, <laughs> this was different, okay, in Georgia. Yeah. So yeah. Um, it was uh, it's very, very transforming. I mean, but uh, having said that, there was a framework of the South that was very endearing, hmm. even though segregation reigned. Right. Very interesting. I, I, I'm, I'm trying to even trying to describe it because there was so much happening at the same time. Right. You had segregation. You had civil rights. You had education. You had the theological dynamics and dialogue. Mm -hmm especially being challenged by ITC, the Interdenominational Theological Center, right. where they didn't have very much respect for Carver because it was viewed as a white okay. 
white Christian school that was, uh, it's where the, it's conservatism equals segregation. Right. Because it could be associated with so many other places that had that theology, but right. that practiced segregation. Right. Like Bob Jones University, that right. would be the kind of epitome of that since it was not too far away. Right. Holding to conservative theology, but not letting black students attend. Right. Right. And Any experiences or classes or professors that kind of stick out to you, especially as you began, you know, your absolutely your training there. Two people dominated influence in my life. Howard Dial, a white professor, John McNeil, a black professor and dean of students. That racial relationship became the dominant influence mm. in my life. Mm. Those two were very close. Those two became my close influences wow. at Carver College. Wow. And because the racial issue was so thick and because of their dynamic, I could interact on that issue from both sides of that fence yep. due to their relationship and their influence academically, spiritually, and personally, and socially right. in that environment. So you show up as a new student, but how do you get, how do you get, Close to them. Like, like how, how did questions. that? Okay, questions. I was the biggest question asker right. in the history of question askers. Because <laughs> uh, I would, I mean, I've been known for that in college and seminary. And he kept asking questions. Oh, my. He had to know everything. I would spend as much time privately with them as I did in class. Mm. John McNeil lived on campus because he was dean of students. Mm -hmm. I'd go over to his house. Questions, questions. In class, out of class. And we became father-son-ish kind of friends. His wife would uh, give me ice cream in exchange for mopping their kitchen floor. He said, do you need anybody to be able to do any mopping or any or work over at the house? I said, well, my wife could be able to use somebody to be able to mop. And he said, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. Uh, I said, well, how much is going to cost? He said, nothing, I just, I just come over and do it. Uh, but I like ice cream. <laughs> and uh, I'll, if you give me some ice cream, that's all I need. Because he wanted to come over and talk. That's what he wanted. He wanted to talk, talk, talk. I said, well, Tony, that's oh, okay. Then he got to come in so often. You got any, got any more work to do? I said, Tony, it's, it's better to pay you than... than, than and then you come and we eat all ice cream. I don't, that's, that, let me let me pay you. <laughs> but he wanted to talk. He went from my office to his office, and everybody was question, question. In fact, he had a problem with uh, the rapture. He wanted to know about all about the rapture. Mm. He said, "Now I don't want the rapture to come. I love the Lord, and but I want." I don't want the rapture to come until I get married. I love that. <laughs> he said, well, you think the Lord would be able to let me stay here until I get married and enjoy life? Because I love Lois. He makes fun of me even today about all my questions. Yeah. Howard Dial was in his office, mostly. And I would sit in his office, and he would welcome me in there to hours. And he was like more of a brother kind of friend. <laughs> mm -hmm. And uh, we would talk about the racial issues, which he was heavily invested in, in terms of 
wanting to address it, but do it biblically, sensitively, but biblically. Howard Dow was more on theology. Okay. But he okay. would invite me to his home. He's, he's younger, so uh, we would have more in common with sports and that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. Well, I met him in the classroom, and uh, I could immediately tell two three things about him, that uh, he was not bashful. He was uh, ready to ask questions. And here's Dr. Howard Dial. Well, we went to watch high school football games. We would get together in my neighbor community. We'd have touch football games out on the school playground. You know, student and teacher, we were real connected, I guess, more so than it wasn't a very sophisticated distance kind of kind of relationship. And I do remember picking up on what you said about Tony's desire to be there one year. He was anxious to get out and be an evangelist mm -hmm. right away. He wanted to be that. I had planned to go back to the evangelists who sent me there in the first place, right? which was Sam Hart, the Grand Ole Gospel Fellowship, and be an associate evangelist with him. He wanted me to get some biblical foundation, so I just viewed it as a temporary thing to satisfy that to get back until I got there and got immersed and fell in love with the process. So right. so it was to go back into ministry. Right. What kind of convinced you that that one year wouldn't be enough? Was there any kind of... A whole bunch of stuff. Yeah. It was the classes I was taking. It was the encouragement of the professors right. and the relationships that were developing there. And I think Sam Harden knew that would happen or anticipated it would happen. Uh, and, and my naivete, uh, I, I wasn't looking at the big picture I was just looking at the, you know, the uh, the plan. So right. uh, God has a way of interrupting plans, reversing plans, canceling plans, changing plans. Right. So, so loving what I was learning, loving the relationships I had established, and being encouraged to finish. And then, you know, one thing led to another, to right. another, right. to another, right. to another, right. to another. What were some of your favorite courses, classes that stick out to you from, from your college days? Hmm. The problem is I love them all because <laughs> I was loving learning the word. Right. Um, my favorite book in the Bible is Ephesians. So I took Ephesians from, I think, Howard Dial. So that was very, very uh, exciting to do. Daniel and Revelation. I took that. Those were put side by side in a course. And I remember that. That was done by the president of the school. But I love the theology courses. I loved juxtapositioning what I was learning to relevancy. Mm -hmm. That was mm -hmm. the always so. So I could love them all because that mindset was there, and I could bombard them with questions, which yeah. I was given really freedom to do. But back to this question asking, I just remembered this. Uh, we had a chapel uh, service, and Dr. Walford, who was president of Dallas Seminary, he was a speaker. And so he had a time for questions and answers. Well, who do you think is going to be asking a question? I remember playing. That's his moment. Yeah. I remember Tony asked Dr. Walford about the relationship of the sovereignty of God and salvation. This was perplexing to him. How do we know if God is 
not just foreknew, but this was Dr. Walford's view, that God chose those in Christ who to be his. And so, to, well, I mean, Tony was somewhat flummoxed here by this, you know, okay, responsibility, sovereignty. I remember Dr. Walford's answer, too. Uh, and he just said, well, it's just like trying to unscrew the inscrutable. <laughs> <laughs> what a line. What a line. <laughs> I left it at that. But Tony didn't stop asking questions about that. You know, he does that now. We call, I'm jumping way ahead, but when we talk on the phone, he's asking me where I, about certain theological persuasions that I had when I was 28, 7. <laughs> Do I still have those now? You never stop learning. I mean, he would go to Brother Dow. A was never enough for him. What kind of student? He was never satisfied with an A. You could teach him till you're sweating. <laughs> and then he comes and said, uh, couldn't I get a little bit, little bit more? The boy, you already got an A. Mm -hmm. He wanted an A+. Plus. He didn't want you to give it to him. He wanted to work for it. We'll be right back. Calling all pastors and kingdom leaders. Dr. Tony Evans wants you to join him at the Kingdom Leaders Summit. You'll experience unforgettable panel discussions and in-depth teachings from Dr. Evans and others. Discover how to apply God's kingdom principles to your ministry, community, and personal life. There's sessions for pastors' wives, too. The dates are October 3rd through the 6th. Register now at kap2023.com. That's kap2023.com. In Baltimore, Tony was forced to confront the harsh reality of racism. But in Atlanta, it was unavoidable. Carver was located in the heart of downtown Atlanta. Their neighbors on one side were the politically active students from the historically black colleges like Spelman and Morehouse. On the other, Ebenezer Baptist Church, where Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was co-pastor. Months after Dr. King's assassination, Tony arrived at the epicenter of the civil rights movement. When I was going to high school, I think there were only two schools in Atlanta that, that had integrated at all. And there were stories of knife fights and race riots. This is Philip Yancey, a well-known Christian author who grew up in Atlanta in the 1950s and 60s. And I don't know how true those were because a lot of rumors were being spread. But in our school, there was a a nephew of the Grand Wizard or something like that of the Ku Klux Klan. And he got out the word that whoever came to that school would go home in a box, being dead. Hmm. And they had cross burnings in the yard of each of these the 13 students who applied. And they all withdrew their application. So that was that was a culture. And you know, I know people from other parts of the country or people who grew up a little later look back and say, did you guys really believe that stuff? Were you that bad? And the answer is, yeah, we were. We had a good thing going. You know, we controlled the money. Uh, we Whites were the power structure. Here's an excerpt from his recently released memoir, Where the Light Fell. In 1960, civil rights activists announced plans to integrate Atlanta's churches. Our church recruits lookout squads who take turns patrolling the entrance against troublemakers. The deacons print up cards to give to any demonstrators who might try to sneak in. They read, Believing the motives of your group to be ulterior and foreign to the teaching of God's word, 
We cannot extend a welcome to you and respectfully request you to leave the premises quietly. Scripture does not teach the brotherhood of man and the fatherhood of God. He is the creator of all, but only the father of those who have been regenerated. If any one of you is here with a sincere desire to know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, we shall be glad to deal individually with you from the Word of God. Unanimous Statement of Pastor and Deacons, August 1960. When no demonstrators turn up, the church eventually softens its stance and permits it. Listen, Colonial Hills was one of the outstanding churches in America. It was not just a little church out in, at the crossroads somewhere. It was a metropolitan church. It was Baptist, but uh, maybe more like a Bible church would be today. And we're talking maybe 1,200 people in attendance in the 50s. A missionary budget was just a colossal, hundreds of thousands of dollars in those days. The church was my spiritual womb. It was only a block from my house. And I'd grown, I'd been there during the war. I was in kindergarten and all those grades. And they were helping to support me while I was teaching at Carver because it was almost like a missionary basis. You had to raise party of support. My father was a teacher at a school called Carver Bible Institute. And this would have been back in uh, oh, 1948, 49. And he was planning to go to Africa as a missionary, along with his wife. And at that point, two young sons. I was the youngest of the two. And then he got polio. Well, we ended up at Colonial Hills, which was originally Southern Baptist. And then they withdrew from the Southern Baptist Convention. Southern Baptists were a little liberal for them. <laughs> and... <laughs> and uh, the Southern Baptist took some, in, in that time, some courageous views and stand, stances on the race issue. They opposed uh, segregation. They were in favor of some of the laws requiring white establishments to, to serve people of other, of other races and color. And that was pretty bold back then. There weren't many whites doing that. And that wasn't the only reason our church withdrew, but they did withdraw. And Colonial Hills was, was overtly racist. They weren't members of the Klan, but uh, you, you, they were committed to segregation. Here's Howard Dial again. Through those experiences with segregation, I went away to school. When I came back from seminary in 1968, I came back to the church. Of course, I was already signed up to teach at Carver Bible College in fall of 68. Well, I came back to the church, but things were more solidified in terms of the segregationist position. I knew that there were those who were against segregation, but I probably underestimated the depth of resistance to blacks. And I was coming of age. And so, things were going on in my personal life to say that this is not good. Ironically, the church had been brought me, nurtured me in the faith by Bible exposition. The pastor was, it was a strong Bible church that my disposition was, wait a minute, aren't we all, regardless of skin color, we're one in Christ and we should live alongside one another, worship together. I was perhaps a bit naive about it. This is Philip Yancey again. Well, like a lot of other churches, Colonial Hills started a school very specifically to keep 
integration at bay to keep white kids from being forced to go to school with black kids, basically. And uh, that's where John McNeil comes in. John McNeil was a dean and professor at Carver, and he wanted a good education for his little daughter. So he tried to enroll her in the kin in the kindergarten. She was turned down, and there was some kind of nonsense excuse about they questioned her doctrine. What kind of doctrine does a kindergartner, five-year-old, have? You know, we had a missionary, and he was mission over in in Liberia. He had adopted some African students as his own, and they didn't did not want them to come to the church, even though they were supporting mission. They didn't want that to happen. And that was the hurtful thing, you see, for for them to be the sending missionaries all over the world. And then when it was time for somebody to come into the, the church to see, they said no. And that's that's what happened there. And the irony is that there was this missionary map as you uh, behind the baptistry. Huge thing with all these dots glowing. Worldwide. Worldwide. <laughs> It's okay to send people to Africa <laughs> to teach people of color, but just don't let them come to our church here in Atlanta, Georgia. So I come to Carver. Tony is a first-year student. I'm a first-year teacher. Tony and I clicked. Tony was not bashful. Tony followed me around. I was a young man myself. is a few years, eight years, nine years older. And... Um, he followed me, asked questions. He was energetic, keen mind. We hit it off. So it just seemed like a natural thing for him to come to church with me where I went to church. We had become not only professor-student, but we had become friends. He had invited me to his home, and, uh, and a lot of our discussions with him would be around the racial strife. And of course, Atlanta being the hub of, of uh, Martin Luther King's um, platform, uh, we we interacted a lot. And um, so one Sunday, he invited me to go to church with him, and I, uh, and I said, uh, sure, let's let's go. And uh, so I went and with him, and uh, as best as I could tell, when I walked in, I was the only, only person of color there. Um, uh, but they had a guest preacher that day, and it was a powerful message, powerful message. And a message that was discipleship, calling for commitment, and 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 so I responded. That message was so strong. During the service, the end of the message, uh, as the Baptist custom was, there would be an invitation. I was sitting uh, near the aisle, next, and Tony was sitting to my left. Well, they gave an invitation, and Tony moved me back a little bit so he could go out. And, and down the aisle. My first thought was, he wasn't to, to like coming forward to just as I am to become a Christian. Yeah. Right. So yeah. that's, that's not that, it's this, it's church membership, which you had a procedure, a protocol. Now I found out some of this from Tony later because I wasn't down there with him. Mm -hmm. And you know, they wouldn't know who he came with. And I had been kind of, uh, I don't, this is not a pat on the back, but I'd been sort of a, a, a special child of the church, as it were, because I had gone to Bible college, Columbia Bible College. I'd gone to seminary. The pastor gave me opportunity to speak in the pulpit when I was just a young guy. Mm -hmm. 
and I was known. Well, a lot of that melted real fast <laughs> and, and dissolved into hostility and pushback and resentment. Well, they let it be known in no uncertain terms that, okay, you visited here, but you, we, this is not something we, we can have as part of our church. And, and, and that created a major, major division in the church. Howard Dial went in, gave them a biblical uh, framework for how they were thinking and acting. We live under the authority of God's Word, and we're brothers in Christ, the body of Christ. Well, I went through this, and I was just getting just stone-cold looks. They turned him down. And then subsequent to that, they had a call conference of the church to tell the church what they had done. It was on a Sunday morning. It was after the service. The place was packed. And the associate, the pastor, stood up and gave an explanation. He said that this man, he would be more comfortable and more he's better suited to worship with those of the same skin color. And this was all public and in, in, in proclamation. My connection to the church that remained, even though I had moved away and gone to college, was a man named John Abercrombie. And he was a cousin of Howard Dial. And when they had the final meeting, churchwide meeting, uh, to decide, he stood up and said, are you telling me that it's the official policy of this church to exclude any of our brothers and sisters in Christ from membership and from the school that this church runs? And the deacon who was running the meeting just got furious. He's, John says, you can see the veins popping out of his neck. And he pounded the gavel and said, this meeting is over. This meeting is adjourned. Do you recall specifically, like, that that week, the conversations with Dr. Evans on how he was processing and how, how you know, even the well, Lord was speaking to him through that time? Well, he, he thought that he had done something wrong, but he hadn't. You know, I mean, he didn't. He didn't. You know, Brother Dow was his friend, and, and and they were so safe together, and it was nothing. And Brother Dow didn't cause him to, he didn't, he didn't force him to do that. He, the Lord was motivating him to do that, you see. Well, we withdrew our membership, and we asked that the support that they were giving us, that that cease. And we left the church. And, you know, there really weren't, I don't know, hardly anybody who left the church. Mm. The church went through a difficult time. This is a little window into how legalism can really be ugly. They were more upset with long hair and earrings mm. and other versions of them, the King James Version and music. I was The social revolution was in full, had a full head of steam at that time, the early 70s. Mm -hmm. And there were some legitimate concerns, but here, right in the middle of all that, was this obvious discrepancy and contradiction to what God's Word, and it hurt. I've spent my life, in a sense, in, in recovery <laughs> from a toxic church. When I was going there, they had, I don't know, 1,200 people maybe. They supported a couple hundred missionaries around the world. It was a thriving, healthy church in some ways, but they got that one thing wrong. And when I went back, the last time I went back, there were maybe 50 people there. Wow. From 1,200 to 50. Wow. And the church kept moving out further and further in the suburbs, and then those suburbs kept changing. 
And finally, I, well, I, I guess there is a remnant still going on, but it's nothing like the church I grew up in. Right. And that church did a lot of good. There are a lot of people who got to know God because of that church. But there are a lot of people who turned away from God. Yeah. Because like me, they found out some of that stuff they taught me was, was flat out wrong. Thankfully, everyone we spoke to was sure to include the fact that in the early 80s, Colonial Hills went through a season of repentance over their sin, offering apologies to Dr. McNeil, Dr. Evans, and their families. We'll be right back. Discover a full collection of resources inspired by the life and teachings of Dr. Tony Evans at LifeWay.com, including books, Bible studies, and commentaries. Explore God's Word in a fresh way with the Tony Evans Study Bible. With notes and commentary he personally crafted and curated to inspire and empower you to live out the values of the Kingdom of God. For a limited time, get 25% off one regular priced product on LifeWay.com with promo code EVANS25. That's L-I-F-E-W-A-Y.com, promo code EVANS25. Expires October 31st. Have you ever thought, am I a good preacher? Or what can I do to become a better one? Am I doing enough to prepare? Is anyone listening? How can I touch the hearts of people with God's Word? Preaching is hard. That's why we've created the Preaching Masterclass, a pathway to help you refine the art of outlines and sermon preparation, preach with purpose, and lead listeners to apply God's Word to their lives. Learn from preaching experts like J.D. Greer, David Platt, Herschel York, Juan Sanchez, and many others. Whether you're just starting your preaching ministry or have years of experience, this toolkit will take your preaching to the next level. Start the Preaching Masterclass today at newchurches.com. Powered by Send Network. The incident at Colonial Hills took place in the spring of 1970, just a few months before Tony and Lois would marry. Can we go back and talk about Miss Lois? Is she now in Philadelphia? She comes to Philadelphia. She's working in Philadelphia. So now you can do phone calls. Yeah. You know, you're not calling overseas. And um, so there was some writing, but there was uh, regular phone calls. There was also visits because during the summer I could go visit. Um, and um, she came to Baltimore on one occasion that I remember. When she first came... She flew into New York. I went to New York to get her okay. to catch the bus yeah. back to Baltimore. What was interesting is I couldn't find her. In the course of our interviews with Dr. Evans, we've actually noticed a few things. One is this. Interesting is a word he uses when he actually means tense or uncomfortable. What was interesting is I couldn't find her. Uh, she, Did that get you in trouble? That's, a, that's the, well, a no. She knew I was there because she called my okay. house, and my mother said, "Well, he's there on his way there," so so the, so she knew that I was going to be there. So she came up. She worked for Sam Hart. Now, during this period of time when we're both single, there's interaction now until it's time to get, to get married. Here's Dr. Evans speaking at the 2021 National Religious Broadcasters Convention. Perhaps some of you have heard me tell the story of when I met. My wife at 18, I met her at 18, this beautiful young lady. But there was a problem. She was not responding at the rate to which I was accustomed. <laughs> Lois was moving kind of slow, so I had, to, I had to help her sister out. 
I took her to an amusement park in Baltimore, Maryland called Gwyn Oaks Amusement Park. And at Gwyn Oaks Amusement Park, they had a roller coaster for two called the Wild Mouse. The Wild Mouse would do all the stuff the roller coasters would do, but then it would go to the edge like it was going to jump the track and then it would turn real quick, real scary. I said, give me two tickets. We got on the Wild Mouse. The wilder the ride got, the closer she got. By the time the ride was over, you thought only one person got on it. Now, why did I buy two tickets to the Wild Mouse? Because I had a plan for her and it was a good plan. It involved the future and a hope. But what I had to do was I had to create some distress first to get her undivided attention. We knew we, we were planning to get married. It was just a time. Now, at Carver, if you got married before your senior year or something, you had to get school approval. Okay. <laughs> so we had to ask the school for approval. Wow. Tell us a little bit about the proposal. Well, I had to write a letter. You had to write a letter requesting to marry his daughter. So I was told that I had to write this letter of the request of marriage and what he could expect if he gave his daughter permission. So I wrote a letter, and I made that a tradition in my family, that, right. that my sons-in-laws would have to write a letter <laughs> that you keep on record, you know. I wrote a letter and submitted it to him. He took his own good time to respond <laughs> and then respond and gave approval so that then we just had to work out timing. Right. But yeah, that was a requirement. Right. He also asked Sam Hart. Okay. Because he knew Sam Hart and he knew Sam Hart knew me and he, he wanted an endorsement. So right. there had to be a reference, an interview, and the letter. Right. Okay, and on top of that, you had to get permission from the school. And on top of that, you had to get okay from the school. That's right. When my grandfather passed away, my mother was in the bed, and she said as she cried, he was such a nice man. He did so much to help us get started. Here's Crystal Evans Hurst again. One of those things was he had to take my father to go get a wedding ring because not only did my father not have money, he didn't know what he was doing. <laughs> so being a very positive, optimistic person, right? Um, it didn't matter, you know, that they didn't have money. He's going to work it out and figure it out. So they had this wedding um, with not very much money, not only because neither one of their parents had a lot to give, but also because I think my mother's father was pretty cheap. <laughs> Right. So often the conversations between her father and my grandfather were what they both weren't going to pay for. So where were you married? Where, where? Baltimore, Maryland. Okay. Yeah, we got married in Baltimore. Yeah. That was an event right there. Yeah. Because we had planned to have candles in a wedding. For my father and her father, that was too Catholic looking. <laughs> <laughs> so that gives you an idea of the conservative nature yeah. of both fathers. That was too Catholic looking. They asked us to be in their wedding. 
My, I think my wife was a bridesmaid. I was one of the groomsmen. I've often loved to tell that story, but I got to see his family. Very spiritually mature, Bible, knowledgeable in the scriptures. I see his spiritual womb was in, in his home and the example of his father and doing whatever it took to provide for his family. And they were so hospitable and gracious to us. The color was yellow. There are uh, people that, if you look at the photos, photo book that's still on the side of their bed in their bedroom, and look, you know, it's just who was in their life at the time. And Miss Lois, did she have people travel quite a long distance to be a part of things? Well, yeah, and her mother actually had a cake baked. Wow. Sent the cake up, and the cake got destroyed in travel. Oh, no. Yeah, here's the bad part. Is a month after we get married, I go down to the diamond. I break my leg playing football. And I get <laughs> I get hit. I intercept the pass or something. I get oh, hit. Oh, man. On the field. An ambulance had to come on the field and pick me up because I snapped it. Tibia and video. Oh, my goodness. I had to be taken to the hospital for surgery. Oh, my goodness. Put on a cast all the way up my hip for six months. Oh. So I am one month married. <laughs> for six months, I have to wear this cast. And a month after the breaking of the leg, I got to go to Atlanta to go back to school. So she's she's kind of a caregiver, so to speak, one month after marriage. Right, right out the gate. Right this is how we're gate. kicking things off, that's year right. one. So that that's that that was an interesting deal. And Lois had that uh, regality about her. You know. She was always very composed mm-hmm. and had a lot of poise. Mm-hmm. And actually Tony may not realize it, but he married up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and she brought... He, he recognized it. <laughs> yeah. She brought, she brought a lot to the relationship. Well, they, they both, that's what marriages are, of course. They right. complemented one yeah. another. Mm-hmm. Well, she took my wife as a, as a mother, Sister McNeil. You know, she oh, asked her questions and she needed to know something. Feminist, you talk to my wife, and he taught me as a as a dad, and my wife as a as a mother. Love it. My wife and Lois just became mm-hmm. real close, and a good relationship. They were close in age. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. <laughs> right. And I still, she was. Uh, we miss Lois. She was. Uh, she had good questions, and she was working to either correct or calm Tony at various points, and they they had a good good relationship. She was a real, real wonderful person. She was a musician. She could sing, she could play, and she was a real supporter to, to Tony. And he loved her. I mean, you know, she, in fact, uh, she could play well and she could sing well. And Tony thought that he could sing well, too. You know, he, so he, and I called him aside, I said, Tony, let your wife sing, you stay with, you stay with the preacher. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah. You know, and they, they lived on a shoestring 
when they were married, I remember the apartment. They lived in a basement apartment yes. over on Cascade Road. Actually, it was the basement of a home okay. of a man who, who lived there who, who let us rent this basement space. Um, and during that two-year period, we had Crystal, uh, who was our oldest child. There in and, Atlanta. There in Atlanta. Yep. What were her favorite date nights and what were yours <laughs> as, as you guys... Well, that was more tied to economic resources okay. or the lack thereof. And there's this place in Atlanta called the Varsity. Okay, I know okay. the Varsity. You know yeah. the Varsity. Yeah. Okay. The date was getting a hamburger at the Varsity. Yeah. I mean, you know, because, you know, there wasn't just a lot of money. We weren't poor. We were poor. <laughs> poor is like super poor. Okay. So we were poor. And uh, so we just kind of eked out yeah. a living. But it was a, it was a good time. It was a good, enjoyable time, and she was fully supportive, fully committed to the Lord, but also fully committed to her call to ministry and supporting me in ministry. So. Right. My grandparents, here back to my grandmother, were especially sensitive to Tony's circumstances and the living meagerly and being a minority and wanting the bigger world to serve in which to serve God. But my grandparents took him under their wings, especially my dear grandmother, and they took food over there to supplement their their groceries because they were just working to get by. And I don't know who else uh, contributed, but I do remember that. But they were happy. It wasn't a very big room at all they lived in, but they, they were happy. As you were interviewing Tony, I kept thinking, they weren't just married physically, they were married spiritually, and so they um, fed off of each other um, to do the work of God. So they had this dynamic synergy of um, just getting God's word out. She was always taking classes, often at his behoovel, encouraging her to, to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the early years of marriage, things were lean. <laughs> and um, I think one of the most fun things has been able to see now as they dig through archives, pictures of them young that we'd never seen before yeah. at Carver, to see him really, really uh, intent on winning the ping pong game. He's an intense competitor. <laughs> at, the you know, ping pong game. The ping pong game. I love he, it. He's a football player, baseball player. Yeah, but basketball. Ping pong, we've heard basketball oh, yeah, stories. Ping pong player, you know, and so I'm extremely competitive. But in those early years, just trying to build a foundation. Right. Um, I've seen my mother's notes she was taking as she learned what it meant to be a pastor's wife. It wasn't just about study the Bible. It was about who you need to be as a husband and as a father, mm-hmm. who you need to be as a person in ministry to walk with integrity. Mm-hmm. And um, the two of them together starting with that as the goal, who do, yeah, we got to study God's word, but who do we need to be in order to live a life of integrity that will not only build the ministry, but build our family? Mm-hmm. Who do we need to be? As a wife who honors her husband, who do I need to be as a husband who covers his family? Mm. And there was as much effort into studying the word as there was into studying who to be. We'll be right back. Churches are filled with people who know the Holy Spirit by his name. But how many of us really understand him? In the power of the Holy Spirit's names, 
a book by Dr. Tony Evans, you will explore 12 of the Spirit's most significant titles as found in Scripture. Know the Spirit by His names and discover what they reveal about Him as a powerful, present, and personal member of the Triune Godhead. Get your copy of The Power of the Holy Spirit's Names today, available wherever books are sold. Next time on Start to Finish. Crystal did not want to go to sleep, and she would cry and cry and cry and cry and cry, which meant I couldn't study. If any preaching was going to be done, it was going to be Tony. It was Friday night. It was called Christian Youth on the Move, and me and a team of the young people would, would be doing evangelism. You know, I was the primary preacher for that, and then it was the, a confidence builder because this right. was raw. I mean, right. you just went out there and, and, and went after it. When I got back a probationary acceptance from Dallas Seminary, that threw us into a conundrum, a mental, spiritual <laughs> crisis because we were all set for, for Indiana. Start to Finish, The Life and Ministry of Dr. Tony Evans is a podcast powered by the North American Mission Board. You can get in touch with us at resources at nam.net. That's resources at namb.net. If this podcast is helpful to you, and I really hope that it was, it'd be helpful to us if you'd leave a five-star review on whatever platform you're listening to and share it with all your friends. Start to Finish is made possible by the cooperation of the Urban Alternative, Dr. Tony Evans, and the Evans family. Our show is written by Neil Hoppy and produced by Kevin Spratt. Editing by Jeremy Spencer. Our audio engineers are Eric Chapman, Aaron Leslie, and Brian Cole. Our music is by J. Adam Wesley. Trevin Wax is our executive producer. We do have a couple of resources to recommend to you this week. Philip Yancey's memoir, Where the Light Fell, gave us an invaluable insight into growing up in a fundamentalist environment in the racist South. Second, published in 1963, Black Like Me is a journalistic expose where the white author, John Howard Griffin, used various cosmetics and supplements to pass as black while traveling in the Deep South. Dr. Evans, Dr. Dial, and Mr. Yancey all reference it in their interviews. They all spoke to what a profound impact it had on them when it came to grappling with racism and segregation. See you next time.